0: Hello. 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 And welcome, welcome to mobilize. mobilize. Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on
1: and is a resource for people, people. friends, communities, communities activists, activists who have decided to stand, to stand up,
0: resist, resist, resist,
1: resist. resist.
0: fight back,
1: mobilize. mobilize. Each day, together. Together.
0: together, we shine a light on the we truth. A light on the we truth. focus on the things that unite us. We, we pull, pull each together. other up. We celebrate, we celebrate our, our shared day. humanity.
1: Episode 16, New Leadership and New Solutions.
0: Alessandra Biaggi is a candidate for the New York State Senate in the 34th District, and one of the few down-ballot races that Huffington Post listed as one of its Democratic primaries to watch in 2018. The reason is that Biaggi is attempting to unseat Jeff Klein, the leader of the Independent Democratic Conference. The IDC has effectively allowed the Republican minority to control the state Senate by caucusing with them and keeping progressive legislation from coming to a vote. Even though the news is just broken that the IDC intends to reunite with the mainline Democrats, progressive challengers like Biagi still intend to press on with their campaigns in this September's primary with the support of the Working Families Party. I spoke with her about how she came to be in this race, how the IDC has impacted New York State, and how she sees herself as part of a progressive blue wave leading the Democratic Party forward. Not just here, but nationwide. Thanks for coming.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here today.
0: Tell me about your background. You went to law school. Um, I know that you worked for Hillary Clinton. I know that you worked for Cuomo. So talk about that
1: whole background and how that prepared you for this. Sure. So the way it prepared me the most was that it wasn't as smooth as it looks on paper. I graduated from high school. I wanted to go to NYU. I didn't get in the first time, so I went to Loyola College. After two years, I applied to transfer, and I got into NYU. So I, I transferred, graduated from NYU with a 4.0 GPA, and I was summa cum laude. And at that point, it like I knew I wanted to go to law school, so I applied to law school, and I got into no law schools. So it it made me pivot. That was what, how I learned to change course and say, okay, what? how are we going to then climb up this mountain? Because I want to go to law school, but how are we going to get there? So I applied to law school again. I got into St. John's Law School. I went at night and I worked really hard to get the best grades possible. After a year at St. John's, applied to Fordham Law School and got into Fordham Law School. And then a dean at St. John's had said to me, you know, you really should stay. It's going to be so hard for you to get onto the law review. And I was like, I got to go. So I went after a week. I did the writing test. I got onto the law review. So it's all these instances of like, no, you can't do that. No, 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 no. Like, that's going to be too hard for you, which which You know, it's really hard to push back against, and all of us experience this. But I just kept putting my head down, working really hard and going forward. So after law school, I became a legal fellow at New York State Homes and Community Renewal, which is the New York State Housing Agency. And then I became assistant general counsel for the governor's office of storm recovery. And in that period of time, I started to say, how am I going to get ready to work in campaigns? What do I have to do? So I went to the women's campaign school at Yale took a fellowship called the New Leaders Council, which is a progressive organization has for about 44 chapters across the country, training progressive leaders, very much in line to how the Republicans are doing it on the other side. But they've been doing it for 30 years and we've only been doing it for like 10 years or so. And then I joined the Clinton campaign in May 2015 on the vetting team. And then after a year of that, I joined the state's team and was deputy national operations director. So, so it was, was basically just opening campaign offices all, all over, the, over the place. Opening them, helping them to manage their budgets, which were, of course, upwards in the hundreds of millions, managing state directors, managing then their senior staff, and then helping to create the systems and the processes, which every state went by. And it was a triage lesson, and it was building the plane while we were flying it. And it allowed me to realize, like, I can do this. I got this. How old were you? Thir- 29, 30. 30. Hmm. I just turned 30. I mean, pretty young to be <laughs> <laughs> To have that much yes. responsibility. It was a lot of young people. So what was the yeah. next step? We okay. all know so how that, that turned out. Right. So that was awful. <laughs> so so we awful. We all felt like that, but I'm sure it was like 10 times worse oh, for you. It was so <laughs> bad. And then just like people being like, what, what do we do next? What's going to happen? Oh, my goodness. And I didn't know. But I, I remember saying to myself, okay. I have an experience that I want to share with people because what I'm seeing is people not in the campaign outside want to get involved in politics in a way that they ne- they have never gotten involved before and it's a responsibility of ours now to break that barrier down. I made a civics curriculum and I started to just teach it in people's living rooms and then just do talks around New York and in my community and it taught me how to create a community. It allowed me to give back and then it just made me realize, all right, you know, if you're passionate enough about the thing that you are talking about, Everything else washes away. And then I joined the governor's executive chamber. In my portfolio, I had women's issues. And then health and human services were two of the things. So
0: what made you decide to run? And actually, you know, what was the process of deciding sure. to go from, like, being wow, I should really do this to actually I getting in and question. doing it? Okay.
1: <laughs> I love this question. because. In my mind, and the reason why I had done all of these campaign trainings was, be- and had been working in politics and continued to do that was because I thought, okay, I'm preparing. I'm preparing for the battle. And one day down the line, I will do it when I'm 40 years old, when I've done all these other things. I've practiced law and I've done nonprofit work and et cetera. And then I met. This woman who's now one of my good friends, Rebecca Davis, and she's the founder of Rally and Rise. And she said to me, you know, Alessandra, there's this really interesting thing happening in New York politics. It's called the IDC. And I was like, oh, yeah, what does that mean? Like, what's going on? So she explains it to me and she says, you know, my state senator is is Jesse Hamilton. And this whole thing is happening in the Reproductive Health Act. And she was so passionate about it and got like so into it. And I, to be really fair, didn't understand all of the details. But I walked away leaving that conversation saying to myself, I need to figure out what's going on here. So I dug a little bit more, dug a little bit more. And I realized that the leader of the IDC was my state senator. So you have these eight state senators and they are Democrats, quote unquote, Democrats. And then they go to Albany and they're caucusing with Republicans. Well, what's wrong with that? Right. Like everybody wants an independent Democrat. I mean, who doesn't want a diplomat? In fact, that's the thing that most people care about is bipartisanship, reaching across the aisle. But they're not doing that. They're cutting these deals with the Republican leadership in such a way that causes the GOP in New York State to actually be a majority. And then the Democrats to be a minority, even though we have elected more Democrats than Republicans. So that blew my mind. But the thing that made me the most angry was the blocked legislation. Women's rights have been blocked from the Reproductive Health Act to the Comprehensive Comprehensive Contraceptive Coverage Act. Immigrants' rights from the DREAM Act. Education issues, right? Affordable housing and tenants' rights. And so I kept going on and on, and I was like, you know what? I can't be quiet about this anymore. And so at the end of December, I left the governor's office. And as soon as I filed, it became like a flurry. And I was like, all right, I think I'm on to something here. This is really important. People really care about this. People feel that they have been lied to for so long. And we have a real opportunity to actually bring progressive governance back to New York. It's like not only helping the people of the 34th District, this is a statewide issue. Like if we dismantle the IDC, we can make New York a majority Of Democrats, which means that we actually pass progressive legislation, which then ultimately means that if the federal government rolls back certain laws, we're able to fight back. A lot of people don't see local and state politics that way. They just see it as in their backyard. But the bigger picture is just so damning. Give me
0: an example, because I was reading about... you know, how you were saying that a lot of this has to do with the fact that we
1: now that Trump's in office, the state needs to protect Mm -hmm. itself in certain ways. Absolutely. So I'll start with um, one of my favorite examples. And it's not my favorite example because it makes me happy. It's my favorite example because it makes me probably the most angry, which is Women's Health and the Reproductive Health Act. So the Reproductive Health Act was first introduced about 10 or 11 legislative sessions ago under Elliot Spitzer. It's a long time ago. What the Reproductive Health Act would do is this. It would update the abortion laws, so it would remove abortion from the penal code, which is the criminal law, and put it into the health law. It would also allow for an, a, a woman to have an abortion after 24 weeks if there is a fetal viability issue. So if the, if the fetus is not going to live, then it would not require a woman to carry this fetus to term. You're required to do that now? Yes. If you hit the 24th week mark and you find out at week 25 that the fetus isn't viable or that the woman's life is in danger, the mother's life is in danger, you have to leave the state of New York to get an abortion somewhere else. Like So, for example, you have to go to Colorado. And so think about it, when you think about it this way, this is not only a women's health issue, this is socioeconomic issue. Because how many people, right, can actually afford to go across the country and then to have the procedure done, which sometimes is upwards of $10,000? So let's say we don't pass the Reproductive Health Act. And the federal government decides Roe v. Wade no longer is um, a right that the states have. The federal government decides no more abortion. Well, what's going to happen is rich women are going to be able to get abortions and poor women are not. And we're going to go back to literally alleyways with women and hangers. So the more that Trump decides, you know, on a whim to roll back anything, we're seeing it with immigrants' rights. I mean, he's deporting people literally left and right. People are showing up for their court appearances and ISIS taking them out. There are ways that in New York that we can protect these vulnerable communities and we can't do it because of the IDC. That is just disgraceful. New York is the gateway for immigrants and immigration. It's the place where we celebrate this and we keep people safe here. And we can't mm-hmm. because of them, right? I mean, there are so there. I could literally go on about these issues mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. Education is a theme throughout the entire district. There are public schools that are just not fully funded, and this is this is an issue that's very closely related and linked to the IDC because a lot of the IDC are individuals who just take contributions from real estate developers as well as hedge fund managers. And I mean, what's wrong with that? And nothing's wrong with that, right? Except when you dig a little bit deeper, contributors who are from the hedge fund area, they are very pro-charter school. And I'm not against charter schools, but... In the law, we are required to fully fund our public schools and we shouldn't be not fully funding our public schools simply because we have hedge fund managers who are very excited about charter schools and want to just, you know, line the pockets of our legislators. Behind the real estate developers, real estate developers really want to keep build, you know, knocking down buildings, building them up, and then putting them on the market for as high as a price as they possibly can rent them for. And that obviously affects affordable housing, which is another issue in the district. So affordable housing is an issue across all of I mean, the state, but especially in New York City. And the reason is because there are three loopholes that landlords take advantage of. All of these loopholes allow the landlords to raise the rent at certain times that ultimately kick out tenants. And so there have been multiple opportunities for pieces of legislation brought that have passed the assembly that go to the Senate and they die. And the reason that they die is because the members of the IDC are not interested in helping tenants' rights. They're interested in landlords' rights. The reason why this is actually tricky, which I want to touch on, because you can't see it at the surface. The members of the IDC say things like this. Well, I support women's reproductive health. And if this bill comes to the floor for a vote, of course I'll be a yes. And so when everyone does the tallies, right, you have a check yes next to all their names. Great. But one of the leaders of the health committee is Senator Flanagan, and Senator Flanagan and Senator Klein are very close colleagues together. And if Senator Klein actually cared about this, he could use his political clout, his political capital to get that bill to the floor. But he doesn't want to. And the fact that he has the power to do it and doesn't do it is just simply enough for all of us to just say, what the hell is going on here? And to be frank, it's like actually very embarrassing. They're counting on our ignorance
0: of the process, which given is a crazy convoluted process, mm-hmm.
1: that they can lie and get away with it. That's right. And that is the epitome of corruption. And it's it, there's there so many points um, over the past year, so from 2017 till now, where I'm like, this is very much like Tammany Hall. Are we like, <laughs> whatever, is this boss tweet? Are we going backwards in time? Tell me about how uniquely dysfunctional New York mm-hmm. State
0: is yeah. that this can happen, and also that— you know, the IDC is in addition to campaign, the normal campaign constituents, you know, like real estate puts money to their campaign. So they are beholden to them.
1: They're also actually getting paid to do this stuff. Right. Great point. Well, so there's two things actually that you touched on that I want to note. So the first one is that these are individuals, the IDC members, they're paid to legislate, they're paid to write laws. And there are instances of the IDC members walking out of the chamber to not vote on issues that they don't want to vote on, like foundation aid funding for for public schools. So So that's crazy that we would use our tax dollars to pay these people salaries and then they actually wouldn't do the thing that they're being paid to do. If I didn't do the thing I was being paid to do, I would be fired. The second part is, Anytime you have a leadership role on a committee, you get more money. And so that is what the, that's what the GOP bargains and barters with these IDC members for. And what's uniquely corrupt about this is that they're really representing their own self-interests, and that is not the definition of a public servant. A public servant is, is someone who is supposed to represent the people, not how can I get more money in my pocket because I want to be more powerful and I want to sit at the table and do the budget deals with the governor. And it's so, so, again, out of touch with the way in in which the world is moving. Trump is an anomaly here. Yeah. And I think it's important to make
0: that connection, too, with the fact that even though this is this stuff has been going on in New York State long before Trump, it's very similar to the kind of profit taking, the fact that people getting into government to actually enrich themselves. And you don't really we don't think of as happening in the United States. That's the kind of thing that happens in, you know, quote-unquote banana republics all over the world. But yet you're seeing, you know, the fact that that's happening here is very similar to what's actually now going on in Washington. That's right.
1: And this scarcity mentality of there's not enough and I have to hold it all is so antiquated and just old. We're sick of it. Enough now. Come on. How
0: do you think these, these things that you're telling me about, you know, in your point of view specifically really speaks to millennials? Because mm-hmm. it sounds like it really does.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it does in a few ways. I think the thing that is really cool about being young in this race, I have a lot of energy. I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and I'll work really hard. But I'm also young enough to understand that I have surrounded myself with a chorus of women and men who have done it already. So at any moment, I can turn to them to ask them for advice. And we're talking all different fields. I'm talking criminal justice reform, LGBT issues, women's issues, housing issues, MWBE, all across the board. And so being young, the benefit is it's allowed me to look at all these issues that have been in place for a long time and to say, how can we create a solution for this in a new way? So anytime that somebody, of course, says, "Hey, you know, you're really young," and I say, "Yeah, I know." Let me share with you some of my really cool ideas for ways that we can do this differently. And by the end of the conversation, they're also excited and ready to knock on doors, which is actually ultimately what I really need: <laughs> it's the nuts, the volunteers, totally. and the people who can come out in an, in an army.
0: We should probably should just mention the sexual misconduct charges against Jeff Klein.
1: Yes. Also, so I, I decided to run before this happened, but I'm a woman. I'm also a sexual abuse survivor. This is a really big deal. And especially right now, the way in which Jeff Klein reacted to the woman who came forward is unacceptable. A leader holds safe space for somebody and says, OK, let's talk about it. Right. They don't blame them. Oh, they were drunk. Oh, this thing they were wearing or whatever. Oh, no, it's their fault. That's such an old way of thinking about things. That- That's how the entire state Senate reacted. Exactly. Basically, right? Exactly. Because they all went rallied behind him. That was very disappointing just to see that happen and to see people rally and say, well, no, no, he's a great guy. I mean, nobody knows what happened except those two. So let's get to the bottom of it. Let's have an independent investigation. The part of it that makes me even angrier and also makes me really excited to be running right now is the fact that when the sexual harassment policies were updated by the Senate, only men were at the table. I mean, how do you not have Andrea Stewart-Cousins, the leader of the Democratic Party in New York State, talk about things that affect women. I mean, this is just another thing to show that it's about the boys club and no women are going to be let in unless we literally knock the door down. And I think people would agree with me in saying that we deserve so much better than this as New Yorkers. And this is way below the standard that we want to continue on. So I have to ask, a lot of
0: people are going to definitely give you a hard time about the Cuomo connection. Yeah. Because we know yeah. that Cuomo also is partly responsible for the sure. IDC holding onto its power. So tell yeah. me about how you feel about having worked yeah. for the governor and now how are you going to be different?
1: My policies are very left of his. And I only was able to know that by working for him, right? So, like, I had to be on the inside to understand what I wanted to do differently. And I know people keep asking me, they're like, well, are you, you know, are you an agent of Cuomo? And it's like, no, he didn't put me up to this job, right? He didn't call me and say, well, you please run for this for this seat. But I'm a- I was able to get to where I am because of that experience. And I know people are going to challenge you, too, on the
0: Hillary Clinton thing. Oh, so yeah. how are you... I think one thing that's a big question right now is what is the future of the Democratic Party? And one of the things on your Web page was about how HuffPost said this is one of the 10 elections to watch. So how do you feel like you're representing the future of the Democratic Party? Do we need to transcend Clinton? Do we need to? What is the next?
1: Where do you think it's going to go? I think that what we've learned is that the Obama playbook was handed over to the Clinton campaign and we've used part of that. We changed the little things. But I think what we've learned is that the playbook is... We can't use it anymore, right? It's old. And it's just that the world now, much to the thanks and gratitude of Clint- of Secretary Clinton running, is different and in such a way that we are going to see people who have never run before come up to run. So, for example, we see nurses, we're seeing doctors, we're seeing mothers, right? Like people who never, ever thought about running for politics, running for office in a time when... We need diverse voices and diverse candidates, which is awesome. So the future of the party is, I believe, which what is what we are seeing now, which is not the same old, same old. It's going to be real human beings, and we're going to see people who are really not afraid to say, you know what, my ideas are important in this state. My ideas are important at this table, and it's going to help to really represent the community. So it's, I really hope that we continue to see this blue wave come, but also this pink wave of women who are, brave as hell, stepping up, understanding what they are coming up against, a lot of them going up against incumbents who have war chests. That's happening with me as well. But also recognizing that money is not the only political currency, right? That's something that's changed a little bit since 2016. People are organizing in a way we haven't seen in a very long time, and I think that's going to change the way that we do politics in the presidential election in 2020, and I can't wait to see what that looks like because that's going to open up the field to more people, and that's ultimately what we want. I have to just touch on this too. When the Congress first started, the reason why it was two years was because they wanted it to be representative of the community. Incumbents stay in power because they have war chests and then new people can never get in. And so then we have these stale career politicians and it's like, all right, your ideas are old now. So let somebody else have a chance. So uh, to even though you didn't ask this question, I'm a huge fan of term limits. What would you say to people who are thinking about running now that you're in it and it's going to be really exhausting and everything? So before I decided to run, I was like, everybody must run for office and you run for office and you run for office and like (laughs) spreading it through the streets. And I still believe that. But I think it's really important to understand how many sacrifices have to go in to one single individual stepping up to the plate to do this. What they don't tell you and what we need to start talking about is who's going to pay the bills? And uh, what are you going to do about your student loans? And if you have children, who's going to take care of the kids? And is there a grocery fund? How much money do we have to save? So these are all things that I'm starting to realize are um, contrary to the message that we're sending, which is everyone must run because that creates, in my mind, another inequity that we're going to have to address. And so some of the ways I'm starting to think about this is how can we make it so that the playing field is equal so that everyone can have a chance? Because for the people who want to run who can't, it's going to make them feel really bad. And that's not OK to me. So I just have to acknowledge that mountains had to be moved in my life in order for me to be able to even do this. My fiance is we have money saved, but he's he's supporting me. That's a that is I want to share that because like this is real life. There are bills you have to still pay. And like, what are we doing to make sure that everyone can run? How is this democratic at any in any way.
0: Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party is trying to re-merge with the IDC. What are the ramifications of that? Are you definitely going to have the support of the Democratic Party? I mean, there's so much horse trading
1: and like... That's right. But regardless of whether they unite or not, it doesn't matter because the harm is done. Of course, I would love to have the support of the Democratic Party because I am a true Democrat that, if elected, would work with the Democrats to get Democratic things done. But even if I don't have their support, I am going to still continue to push on in this race because what Jeff Klein has done, you can't undo that. And so we could put you could put the hat on as a Democrat. But like we everyone knows underneath that hat, you're not a real Democrat. So like it's all a farce. Like the public could not possibly understand. No, we all see clearly. We're not stupid. So we're all going to use our voices, and hopefully that also means that we're all going to come out to vote, because that's ultimately, at the end of the day, what it's all about. We have to come to vote if we want to see the leadership that we want. My name is Alessandra Fiagi. I am running for New York State Senate in the 34th District. And I am running on a true democratic progressive platform which includes issues such as voting reform and a healthy democracy, economic development and future industries, which are things that are coming for us whether we like it or not and we got to focus on them and prepare for them and that means passing laws to protect us in that category. Women's rights and that includes things like the Reproductive Health Act and the Comprehensive Contraceptive Coverage Act, affordable child care, stronger protections for victims of domestic violence and sexual abuse and sexual harassment. Assessment. And then, of course, immigrants' rights and gender rights. Um, I mean, the, the list truly goes on. If you if you put my policies side by side to the Democratic and progressive policy platform, it would align perfectly. It would fit like a puzzle. So I'm very I feel very proud of that because it's authentic and it aligns. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm really excited to be able to use my voice to help to bring progressive governance to this district and to this state, as well as to to really focus on our future and prepare for it in a way that makes us really strong and and allows us to continue to be national leaders in this country, and to bring a fresh approach to politics, which really means doing what's right even when it's not popular. (laughs)